I don't know Ian well, but I've just enjoyed so much uh, him coming up this weekend, sharing with us 15 minutes on Friday night, and then did a, a lovely 60-minute uh, or so session yesterday. 60 plus, yeah. And, um, yeah, Ian, I can just say what I see in you is just a, a great humility, um, a gentleness, mm. and uh, a love for the church. You don't know these guys, but because mm. Christ is in you, you've got a love for this church. And so, church, even though you don't know Ian, he is a, a brother in Christ mm. from a church that we are a family with. And uh, Ian, we're really excited tonight to hear what the Lord's put on your heart. Get ready for some big words, uh, scary <laughs> words, and may give you great boldness okay. as you speak on this Thank great you. topic. You, yeah, really, 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 really has been lovely being with you this weekend. Um, my wife, I don't know how many of you were at the conference. I don't know how many of you are fresh, so I'm having to frame everything. So if you're at the conference, you're going to hear some stuff again. If you weren't at the conference, you're going to hear some stuff and go, what did we talk about this weekend? And then you're going to have to listen to it. Okay, so there's stuff for both people, whether you were there or not. But my wife, Laura, my two kids, Nathan and Leila, have been up for the weekend, and we've loved East London. I mean, I had to repent because we had this joke in Cape Town that East London and PE are basically the same thing. And um, I've been to PE, and now I've been to East London. They're not the same. You guys have a way better, way better. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. It is so beautiful. On Friday morning, we got to spend the whole morning on Nahoon Beach. It is beautiful. I do find it funny, though, that like everything's 10 minutes away, and you're still like, Oh, we were in Nahoon, you were Beacon Bay. I crossed over the river. Like, we literally crossed over the river mouth. And I told someone, they're like, oh, you went all the way to Beacon Bay. I'm like, no, we crossed the river mouth. I was still on Nahoon Beach. Come on, guys. It's a funny East London thing you guys have got going on there. We went to Beach Break. We had coffee. I'm a, I think it's Beach Break. Yeah, yeah. I'm a coffee snob from Cape Town. The coffee there was fantastic. I enjoyed it. Unlike I've been saying it all weekend as a joke, God, that I feel a calling to East London because it's so beautiful here, but I don't really. Um, just to put it out there, <laughs> I'm like, I, I know God's sense of humor in the next thing. Okay. Um, but um, I am falling in love with East London is my point. And it's been great to be here speaking about this topic of sexuality. And what's lovely is that your church and leaders are having this conversation. And what's been so amazing about this weekend is that we've given, your leaders have given you and us as a community the permission to speak about these things. And it is so important that we are freely and able as the church, which is a grace community, to speak about our sexuality and what sexuality is, especially if as a church we believe it is a gift from God. We should be the ones speaking about it the most. God created this. It is a good gift and a love that we are having this conversation. And in many ways, the message I'm going to bring tonight is actually, when I readed this message back in Cape Town, this was the first message in the series, and now we're doing it at the end. And so it's going to feel like I'm opening up a whole bunch of stuff that may largely be unanswered. But that's because we painstakingly answered so many of the questions over the weekend. So if you miss the weekend and you feel like, whoa, there's so much that he's opened up and didn't close or bring clarity to, that's because we did it on the weekend and I encourage you to go back and listen to those talks. And one of the things I, I just want to give us a picture as I frame this conversation on sexuality is that, and what we're largely going to be speaking about tonight is this idea of worldview and how we view the world and how we make sense of the world. And a picture that I have is that what happens is as people, we we kind of go through life, and as we go through life, life throws us these different puzzle pieces, and we have these experiences, like 
We have experiences of suffering. We have experiences of interactions with people. We experience, hey, I've got these sexual desires and a sexual awakening, and I, what do I do with those? And we have all these different experiences and things that come our, our way, and, and opportunities and successes and failures, and they're like puzzle pieces that come towards us, and we all have them. Every single one of them has experiences in life. And what we're trying to do is we, as we go through life, we take these puzzle pieces, we put them together, and we go, how do I make sense of this? And we try to shove them together and make sense of them, our subjective experiences. And what happens is when we come to a conversation like sexuality, I'm pointing like this, the word sexual, it's not up there. Um, when we have come to a conversation like sexuality, what can happen is it can become incredibly controversial, and we can see a lot of heat and not a lot of light emerge. And if you do any time on social media and you watch American politics, you'll see that they are shouting at each other at the moment on this topic of sexuality. And the reason that I think that it becomes so confrontational and there's so much conflict is because we are trying to make sense of the topic from our subjective puzzle pieces that we're putting together. And I put together my, my picture over here, and then I look at your picture and I go, that picture is so wrong. And we start the conversation there at our own subjective experience. And as a pastor, I've learned that it's the wrong place to start the conversation. The conversation we need to have is, where's the puzzle box? Where's the box? No one starts building a puzzle without first putting the puzzle box up and going, that's the picture I'm trying to build. And there's something objective that I can take each puzzle piece that I have in my hand and go, oh, that's where it fits. That's how I make sense of it. And so how we view the world really matters and how we make sense of the world and where we decide our puzzle box will be will have a profound impact on how we make sense of the puzzle pieces that we hold. And this evening, I want to unpack a text where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that we hold every puzzle piece that comes our way up to and go, this is how I make sense of it. And the reality is, as Christ follows, we live in a world that has a different puzzle box. There is a different puzzle box. There are multiple puzzle boxes that the world is trying to hold their puzzle pieces up to and make sense of it. But for the Christ follower, the fundamental claim of Jesus is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he's the one that we should do this. So as we look at this text, we're going to look at the world we live in. We're going to look at Jesus is the way. We're going to look at what it means that Jesus is the truth. And we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is the life, specifically in this area of our sexuality and worldview. So I'm going to read from John 14, 1 to 7. Read along. It's going to be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can read there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you will also be. And you know that the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him. You, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to you, the living God, the creator of the universe, that we would encounter you. Father, we don't gather because it's a nice thing to do on a Sunday, God. We gather as your people because we've been rescued and redeemed and have encountered a living God. And as we gather, we trust that we will encounter you freshly as your people. 
And we pray, God, that you would speak into our lives, that you would, you would speak into our sexuality, that you would speak into our fears, you would speak into our confusion, God, and that you would bring your, your truth and your life and your ways to bear. God, we want to leave different tonight because we've encountered the living God who has poured out his spirit and who has spoken his words. We love you, Jesus. We trust you and we rest in you. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do is I'm going to make a point that isn't necessarily rooted in the text because what I want to do is I want to speak to the world that we live in and I'm actually going to read something that I've spoken about which kind of tells the story of our culture. And I think before we get to the text and make sense of the text, we need to understand the puzzle box that our culture is holding up or the water that we swim in or the air that we breathe. And before, so I'm just going to take a moment to speak to what I think the predominant worldview in our culture is at the moment so that we have some sort of context to make sense of these things. And, and when I speak of the puzzle box or these puzzle pieces and us trying to make sense of what picture we should compare them to, I'm simply speaking of one's worldview. And here's the thing. Every single person in this room has a worldview. Every single person in this room, whether conscious or subconscious, is trying to answer some big questions in life. And those big questions are, who am I? Why am I here? And what is wrong with the world and how can it be made right? And every single one of us is operating from a set of beliefs around those questions. And we might be things that our parents have told us. They might be things that we've gathered along the way. They might be things that friends, the, the, the friendship groups are in. But we have beliefs that we believe, and that's called our worldview. And then there's some bigger, more universal questions. What should I think about God and the nature of man and truth and knowledge and ethics? And cultures for, and people for centuries, ever since creation, have been trying to answer these big questions and make sense of these big questions. And if you look at different cultures and different places, you'll see that there are different answers to these questions. There are different ways of answering them. And our culture answers these questions in a certain way and is trying to make sense of these questions in a certain way. And our culture has a worldview that it's living from. And I would argue that secular, secular humanism is the predominant world culture. Now, in Cape Town, I was sitting at a coffee shop called Bootlegger, and I was writing this talk out a year ago. And the people next to me were talking about secular humanism. I'm like, yes, I got it right. And if you're like, who talks about secular human? You're in the majority. People that, I think they were actually ended up being philosophy lecturers who were just sitting next to me talking about this. But, but what the word means or what the terms we use don't mean, but understanding the water we swim in matters. And I'm going to read something around how our culture is constantly is making sense of these things. And it may resonate with you. It may resonate with you. You might go, yeah, that's our culture. But it also may be like, oh, is that really where our culture is going? So there might be some resonance and there might be some lament as I read this. So what does our culture think about God? Something like this. Mindfulness, meditation, thinking positively, fasting, and general spirituality are incredibly important and, help and helpful. They connect us to the bigness of what we're a part of, but these things should probably be disconnected from any specific God. There are so many claims about God, and with over 2,000 gods, can any one claim be true? What does our culture think about knowledge? Science, in many ways, has liberated us from the need to believe in God or gods, as through it, we make amazing discoveries about how the world works, filling in gaps in our knowledge and, re and revealing our origins to likely be atheistic evolution. If any... 
if anything, concepts of God might be getting in the way of us fully realizing our full potential. What does our culture think about truth? Therefore, if man is the pinnacle of evolution, we need to find meaning and purpose within ourselves. The most authentic thing we can do is to, be fu- is to fully become who we feel ourselves to be and then fully express ourselves in this world. Anything else would be to live a lie and an, in- and an inauthentic life. Therefore, the most loving thing we can do for each other is give each other the space to find our truth and live out our truth as long as it does not hurt or harm anyone else. Live your truth. What does our culture think about sexuality? Since we have evolved through a random set of circumstances, our bodies are nothing more than matter, and we can do to them whatever we want. Since truth is found inside ourselves, we should mold our bodies to what we believe them to be, using them how we want. Sex, therefore, is nothing more than play for consenting people. Gender, male and female, is just a social construct, and we should view it on a spectrum and feel free to choose our gender for ourselves. Marriage is also a social construct. Monogamy is not natural, and we should explore unrestricted our sexual desires. If it makes you happy, do it. If it stops making you happy, just end it. And that includes marriage. Let's not call it divorce. Let's call it conscious uncoupling. What about ethics? The world is not fully evolved into what it should be, but through a progress, we can make the world a bit better. Through education, scientific advancement, advancement, and better governance, removing systemic injustice and speaking truth to power, throwing off unnecessary restrictions, responsibilities, and beliefs from previous generations, the old ways of doing things, this world will get better. Especially if every individual commits to getting just 1% better every day, looks after the planet, consumes responsibility, responsibly, this world will be better tomorrow than it is today. What does our culture think utopia or heaven looks like? The hope we have is for a life that works, to live in a world where we can all sit in well-designed coffee shops, drinking, see I'm from Cape Town, well-designed coffee shops, drinking good coffee, surrounded by diversity of every kind, diversity of thought, diversity of truth, diversity of cultures, diversity of beliefs, diversity of genders and sexual orientations, Instagramming on our iPhones with no one hating our truth consuming what we want, and finding happiness in our truth, maximizing our personal freedom and pleasure. I don't know where East London is and all those things, but I would say that's the story of secular humanism. That's the belief, that's the worldview, that's the puzzle box that our culture is heading towards and living in. I'd say in the West, it's fully there. In Cape Town, we're fully there. And I can't say where East London is on these things. But what I do know is I was going to hold up my cell phone, but I don't have it. What I do know is that what was beautiful about smaller cities was that you could hide from some of the insanity. But with cell phones, it's everywhere now. There is no longer small cities. Everyone is hearing these things. If you are watching Netflix, this is the story you are being told. If you are on social media, this is the story you are being told. And what makes this story so complicated for the Christian mind is, I don't know about you, but you listen to it and you go, no, I don't think so. Oh, yes, I agree with that. Oh, no, no, but should I think that or shouldn't I think that? And it's a story that can be quite confusing and quite complex. And the reason it's so confusing and complex is because it's a post-Christian story. 
It's a culture that is post-Christian. Christianity has had a profound impact on this world and, and in its impact. But now people are going, hey, we can have the best of Christianity and it will be even better if we just remove God from it. We take God out of the picture and suddenly you've got compassion for people and the vulnerable, which wasn't a concept until Jesus stepped into human history. In Roman times, it was, if you are weak, it is because you, deserve, you, you are not powerful and you put yourself there. And you should be discarded and used and abused as the powerful feel fit. And Jesus steps in and goes, no, compassion is a good thing. Using your power to serve and love is a good thing. And so we have this, this confusing story of our culture at the moment that borrows so much from Christianity, but at the same time is trying to jettison God out. And we find ourselves confused and in a culture of complexity that is changing rapidly and really quickly. And what's so dangerous about that is that what I'm seeing, and I see the tendency in myself so often, is that I'm starting to struggle how much Christianity in me and how much secular humanism is in me. Sometimes I think we're actually so swimming in these waters we don't realize it, and we stick the veneer of Christianity over the top. I've got small kids, and I learned the hard way. You never buy anything nice for your house while you have small kids. Their job is to destroy anything nice you buy. It's like they've got a radar for nice things. They're like, I'm going to leave that thing. That's also, I'm going to destroy that thing. And so I bought this really cheap coffee table, like the cheapest coffee table I could find, and it was veneer. And like day three, sure enough, Layla stuck a huge sticker on it, boom. And about three days later, I got to taking that sticker off, and as I peeled it off, all the veneer on the one side just came off with it. It's like, point in case, don't buy nice things. Now I'm stuck with this coffee table, which is half veneer and half chipboard. And I wonder if someone had to stick a sticker on our lives, on top of that veneer of, or, or what looks like Christ on top of us. And they had to take that sticker and rip it off. I wonder if they would find secular humanism below and the veneer of Jesus would be easily removed. Or would they find the deep grains of Christ, his truth, his ways in our lives? And that's the danger of the culture we swim in. And I think what Jesus is going to challenge us in is, is how do we make sure that we have deep grains of Christ in us and not deep grains of secular humanism, the chipboard of secular humanism. So we have to go to the words of Jesus to answer that. John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a bit of the context here is what's happening is Jesus has just said to his disciples, I'm leaving. And James is going, hold on. <laughs> we are those who, we gave up everything to follow you. We said to you, Jesus, we are all in. You have our lives. And now you're going to leave us? How, how can you leave? Where are you going? And Jesus answers in this profound way. He goes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And James is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just, are we going back to Jerusalem? Which town are you going to? Where's this house where you're building rooms? And how do we get there? And Jesus tenderly and profoundly answers him, James, you know where I'm going. You know where I'm going because you know me. You know the way. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you know me. 
And James probably started to click, okay, there's something more going on here. Remembering that throughout the book of John, there are eight I am statements that Jesus makes, echoing the I am statement of God at the burning bush. And Jesus is saying, remember, James, I am God, and you know me. Therefore, you know the way. And what Jesus is getting at when he says, Jesus is the way, when he says he makes that claim, I am the way, what he's getting at is two things. One, I am making a way to the Father. I'm going to go through a death, a resurrection, and I'm, I'm making a way for those who are far off to, to be reunited to the Father. I'm making a way to the Father. But he's also saying it in the sense of, I, I have you have lived with me, and I have perfectly shown you the ways of the Father. Look what he says in verse 7. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, you've seen the Father in me. You know the perfect ways of the Father. My ways are perfectly aligned to how things are meant to be. I represent the perfect ways of the Father. Thomas's ears would have pricked up and he would have he would have understood what Jesus was saying here, knowing Psalms like Psalm 25, which verse 4, which says, make, um, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. What Jesus is saying is in all the complexity that, of, of living in this world, in all the confusion, when things move fast, when things change, when cultures shift, when Roman empires come and go, when, when we find ourselves here in East London in 2023 and there's this massive sexual revolution going on, I'm the way. I will show you the way to choose. I am the map that helps you navigate your way through all this complexity. And the call is not to go and figure it all out and go, oh, I've got the, the, the call is to come to the person of Jesus and say, Jesus, show me your ways. Show me the ways of the Father in this. And, and people who like to talk about worldviews, they talk about these mental maps. And the concept of a mental map is simply this, is that every single day we wake up and we have a set of beliefs and we use those set of beliefs to navigate our way through the world. Things come our way and we've got this mental map that is kind of our GPS guidance through the world. And Jesus is saying, build your mental map on my ways because I am a true map. I know the way to life. And where these mental maps correspond to what is real in the world, they lead us to life. And where these mental maps are disconnected from what is real and true, they lead us to death and pain and chaos. And so the question is, is how true is your mental map? How true are the set of beliefs in your head that are guiding you every time you wake up, every time you hear something, every time you do something? How true are those mental maps? Because if those mental maps aren't true, they will cause pain. We have this um, pass in Cape Town called Bain's Kloof. It's one of the more dangerous ones. It's a narrow road. There's a sheer drop on the one side and a mountain on the other. And a friend of ours invited us to go to Bain's, to a, to a kind of holiday house that they have near Bain's Kloof. And it was about a two-hour drive. My, my kids are young, so we timed it perfectly. We're like, we will drive over their nap. That way we won't die in the car. So we put them in the car, over their nap. We start driving. I put the, the address in Google Maps, and off we go. And we're on Bain's Cliff. And I'm like, oh, we've timed this perfectly. They're starting to wake up, these kids. And, and it's saying we're 10 minutes away. 
And then I had this moment of like coldness drop come over me. I was like, there's no way we're going to be the other side of Bain's Cliff in 10 minutes. And, and there's nothing on Bain's Cliff except the drop in the mountain. I was like, something is wrong here. And I looked at my GPS and I, I hadn't put in the address. I put in Bain's Cliff and it was just taking us to the middle of Bain's Cliff not to where we were meant to go. And now I know my kids are waking up. And kids, well, my kids are little demons when they wake up. And when they're in the car and they can feel my stress that we're not at the destination, it just escalates. It's like they, 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 they're prone to be like, I feel your stress, I'm going to make it worse. And they just go, and, it's, and now I'm starting to panic. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to put in the right address. Bain's Cliff has no reception. So now I'm like, okay, we're either 20 minutes back that way or we're 20 minutes forward. Either way, I'm making a 40, there's a potential 40-minute mistake here with two kids who are waking up and ready to get out this car. And I start to panic. Chaos and pain. Chaos and pain. Why? Because my map was not correct. And for those of us where our maps are not correct, no matter how much I was on Bain's Cliff going, I wish I knew the way. I wish this map was correct. I wish this was good. It was not good. It was not correct. And it was leading me away from life and towards chaos. So the question is, how correct are your maps? And Jesus would say, they are correct if they are aligned to my ways. And the more and more we align our ways and our thinking and the beliefs that govern our lives to the ways of Jesus, we are aligning them to the ways of the Father. We are aligning them to the ways of the Creator. Not only does Jesus say, my ways are the, the ways to life, the map to life, Jesus says, I am the truth. He is the truth. And he makes this massive clay, um, truth claim, which is so important. Because what he's actually saying when he says, I am the truth, he's not just saying, I will show you the truth. I myself am truth. If you know me, you know what is true. If you come to me and spend time with me, you will grow in a knowledge of what is true because you are spending time with truth itself. I am objective truth. I am the puzzle box. Every single puzzle piece, if you're holding up your puzzle piece to the person of Jesus and you're going, oh, it looks like it fits there, and you're saying, no, but I really want it to fit here. He's saying that your version of truth is subjective. His version of truth is objective and true and real. For all eternity, it's been that way. And we would do well to place the puzzle box piece of our life where he would say it goes. The problem is our culture is questioning this idea of truth. Our culture is going, we don't think there is objective truth. In fact, we think everything is random, therefore we must find our own truth. And this debate on truth didn't start in this culture. It goes right back to the very trial of Jesus. Look at what John 18 says. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is an amazing moment that the debate on truth isn't just the thing our culture is doing. It is a thing that Pilate himself, way back 2,000 years ago, at the very center of Jesus' trial, would say, what is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Is there anything objective that we can bring things to and go, is this real? Is this good? What, are, what should I do with this? It 
And as I said, our current worldview believes has a has a puzzle box about truth. And as the our current um, culture holds up truth as a puzzle piece to its puzzle box, it goes, this is the story it tells. It believes in atheistic evolution, that there was no creator, that we are the product of random events that took place over billions and billions of years. And because of uh, humans' amazing inbuilt desire to continue and progress, we have come out as the pinnacle of evolution, that we are phenomenal creatures, and that how amazing we are because we, after billions and billions and billions of random events, we are who we are and we're at the top of the food chain. And that humans should be celebrated. And that humans are the center of everything. And therefore humans surely find truth within themselves and have to generate their own truth. That's what our culture believes and stands in stark contrast to the story of Jesus. And our culture loves this idea. It loves this idea that, that we can have truth apart from God because what it means is I am free to express my, come up with my own truth and express my own truth. I'm free to take any desire I have and use it in any way that I want as I live it out. In fact, our culture says live out your truth. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, live out your truth. there are two massive problems with this idea around truth. The first one is no one actually understands the implications fully. Well, no one, we don't often consider the implications of what it means that there is no objective truth. There was a great thinker, Friedrich Nietzsche, quite famous, and he said the statement, God is dead. And what he meant by that is that we have thought God out of the equation. We no longer need God. We no longer need this object of truth. Humans are amazing. Through our own intellect, we will figure out how to move forward. God is dead. And people throughout time have thought that he was having a victory statement in that moment. God's dead. We won. We don't need God anymore. But actually, if you read the, in, in, in its context, it's actually a lament because Friedrich Nietzsche, as an as a, uh, intelligent thinker, understood the implications of what it meant that God was dead. And yes, he was a humanist, and he died a humanist, and yes, he didn't believe that there was a God, but he understood the implications of what it meant that there was no objective truth. And these are some of the implications he points out. If there is no God, there is no inherent value to people. People have no value. If there is no creator, no design, if you are just matter that happened to um, come about because of 2,000 years of evolution, you have no value. And therefore, the powerful should use you however they want, and you should get as powerful as you can get to make sure you're not used in ways you don't want to be used. If there is no God, it means that there is no meaning or purpose to life. That everything is random and meaningless. And, and what is so sad is that thinkers who go down this way and actually consider the reality that there's no God and start to believe it, atheist thinkers often end up committing suicide. Because they say, hey, there is no point to life. There's no, why should I suffer or continue to suffer? There is a lecturer at UCT called Benatar. How scary is that name? Called Benatar. And he believes this. He believes that it is unethical for people to have children because you're bringing children into a meaningless world to live a meaningless life, to suffer meaningless suffering. And therefore, it is completely meaningless and cruel to bring a child into this world. And that's the foundation he builds for abortion. 
save people from suffering. And what's the first thing that goes out the window if there is no God? Justice. Friedrich Nietzsche said there's no justice if there is no God or no meaningful justice if there is no God. And we see this with Pilate. It's an insane moment where Pilate stands with Jesus and says, you're being tried. And Jesus goes, I am truth. And Pilate goes, what is truth? And then he goes outside and he says to a whole bunch of people, I find him not guilty. Crucify him. There's no justice in that. He's not guilty, but crucify him. I don't care. There's no such thing as truth. What does it matter if an annoying person who has no value gets hung on a cross to save me having to deal with a bunch of other people who have no value who are bothering me a lot? Crucify him. Justice goes out the window. And the problem is in the sexual revolution that we find ourselves in, we got our culture saying two things, that, that bodies have no meaning, sex has no meaning, it's detached from marriage, it's detached from childbearing, and we don't, it, it, it's just for pleasure. And it's not attached to love or emotion or care or tenderness or service of other. Just have sex for pleasure's sake. That's a great meaning to, for us to put on it. And people, it just matter that you can transform your body however you want. But at the same time, so we're saying this on the one side, and then on the other side, we lament as a culture a gender-based violence and how it's increasing. We lament at the reality of these, like with, through these hashtags, hashtag me too. And so how, we have this culture that's saying sex is meaningless, people are just matter, do whatever you want to your body. And then there are people on this side going, Sex is meaningless. Do whatever I want to your body. And we're trying to draw an arbitrary line there. Tychidus, he was a uh, philosopher back in the Spartan Athens War, 404 BC, so a long time ago. He said this, the strong do as they will and the weak suffer as they must. If there is no God, the powerful are justified in doing whatever they want and the weak must just suffer and endure the reality that they're weak. So there are great implications if we remove God from the equation. The second problem is that science is trying to answer the why question. And faith and science are not in conflict. If anybody tells you faith and science is in conflict, they're lying to you because faith Faith and science is simply answering two different questions. Faith is answering the why. Why do we exist? Where do we find meaning? Why is this world here? Science is answering the question, how does this world work? And they're very complementary. And in fact, when science tries to answer the why question, they have to admit that they're stepping into theology and philosophy, not science. They're stepping out of their field, and they're trying to answer a question that only theology or philosophy can answer. And even then, I don't think theology or philosophy can answer it. And I'm a parent with young kids, as I've said many times, and Laura went off the other night for two hours, and as a parent, I was like, <gasps> two hours, what do I do? You're like, I've got like five years' worth of stuff that I haven't been able to get to. What do I do with this two hours? And then you panic, and you don't do anything fruitful. I turned on Netflix. And I watched this movie called Jupiter Rising, and it is a bizarre movie. It got like less than 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Don't watch it. And it had this really strange concept, but basically the answer to why humans are on Earth is that more evolved humans find out that if you use human genes, you can live forever. And so they started seeding planets around the universe with lesser human beings so that they could farm them 
and use their genes to live forever. Great storyline. And you go, that is such an absurd storyline. Why did I watch that? (laughs) I'll never get those two hours back. Top thinkers, scientific thinkers of our time, someone like Dawkins, someone like Hawkins, when pushed in an interview saying, why are we here? Why did it all start? You know what the answer was? We were probably seeded by aliens. That's what happens when science tries to answer the why question. So this isn't as bizarre as we think. This story that was being told is the story of secular humanism. And we see it in our media, and we see it on Netflix. This is the stories that we believe. So science can't answer the why question. No one can answer the why question. How do you answer the question, why do we exist? How do you answer that question? Well, you have to be able to do one of two things. You have to either go right back to where it all began, the Big Bang, God spoke, let it be, boom, creation. And look there and go, oh, that's what happened. That's who did it. That's why it started. That's amazing. None of us can do that. The only other way we can answer the why question, there are actually three ways. The second way is to go, to get into a rocket ship and go faster than the speed of light, get beyond an ever-expanding universe, ever-expanding, faster than we could ever reach the edges of this expanding. Somehow get behind, be, go around the curtain, look back on creation, go, oh, that's how it all works, that's who's doing it, that's why it exists. Those are the only two ways that science could answer the why question which is what makes this claim of Jesus that he is the truth so profound and so amazing. There is, Christian, there is no other religion, idea, or philosophy that says what Jesus has said. Nothing. There is nothing out there for all time that has said what Jesus has said. He has a unique claim. Not just that he has heard from God, but that he is God. And therefore, he is the embodiment of truth. And you know what that means? Is the one from outside of creation. The one from outside the system stepped into creation in humility as a baby to reconnect creation, the ones he created, back to himself. And he stands at a trial of a person who he created and who's he's giving breath. And as that person, person says to him, there is no truth, Jesus is going, I'm allowing you to breathe. I'm allowing you the breath to deny, to call me a liar. And the creator of the universe stands there and says, I am truth. I know the way because I'm from outside. The only way we can answer the why question is if the person who created it all would step into our world and tell us why. And he has told us in the arrival of the person of Jesus, God himself. And what that means is that if Jesus is who he says he is, it changes everything. And if Jesus is not who he said he is, he is a liar and a madman, we should reject him as C.S. Lewis says. But if he is who he says he is, It changes everything for us. Everything. It means that we can take our beliefs to him. It means that we can take our views on the world to him and should take our views on the world to him. 
It means that we can bring our experiences, good, bad, and painful, to the person of Jesus. It means that we should bring everything, including our sexuality, our desires, and our attractions, attractions to the person of Jesus and say, what is true? What is true here? Help me make sense of it. And not only is he true, but he is kind. He is merciful. He laid down his life. He is generous. So you can trust him with that stuff. You can trust him with every puzzle piece you hold. No matter how much it is a part of you, no matter how much it is a part of your identity, you can go to truth itself and you can trust him. You can say, here, help me make sense of this. And he will. And he has a completely different story to secular humanism. Completely different story. And it is a beautiful story. It is a story full of hope. It is a story full of identity. It is a story full of life. When, when we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, who am I? He says, you are created with purpose. You are designed with intent. You have value and worth. You are an image bearer of God. And if you are a Christ follower, you are a beloved son and daughter. That's Jesus' story. And when we ask Jesus, why am I here? He says, to creatively continue to bring order to my creation, using your God-given gifts and talents and skills to reflect my nature and character in this world and to live for the glory of my name and the good of others. He gives us purpose, not a purpose we have to find for ourselves. And then what does he say to ethics? All people have value and worth and are created by me. No group, no culture is superior or inferior in any other way. God's ways, God's objective moral standards is what everything will be judged against one day. And anyone who has power is called to use that power to serve and love the weak and the vulnerable. And then finally, sexuality. What does Jesus' story say about sexuality? God has made our bodies. He has made them male and female. They are a gift from him, and he desires for them to be used in the ways that he designed them to be used. Sex is a wonderful gift from God, not something to be despised or fear, feared, but something to be celebrated as a good gift from God, as a man and a woman do so in covenantal marriage. Marriage is a covenant where love is not a feeling and not necessarily and primarily about my happiness. Love is a choosing love, a strong love, something where I say to the other one, I am willing to know the worst of you and I will choose to love you anyways. That is how God has loved me. A place where it is safe to be known and loved. Here we experience this wonderful, um, here we experience the wonderful and safe place for sexuality to be expressed physically. Where we see its purpose of bringing about life and children into this world as a gift from God. Using sex to serve and love the other rather than simply make it about myself. And when you suffer as a Christ follower, you don't suffer without hope, and you don't suffer without meaning, and you don't suffer without purpose. We follow a Savior who knows what it is to suffer 
and bring comfort and meaning to every suffering for a person. And when we are not crazy, when we are not crushed, when we are not full of victimhood or self-pity in our suffering, and people go, why? Why are you so calm in a culture that's going crazy? Why are you so calm in suffering? Why are you so sure? Where is this rock-solid identity coming from? Why is it that you seem to have purpose where nobody else has purpose? What happens is when people ask us that question, we go, because of Jesus. Because of who He is. Because of what He's done. Because of what He means to me. Because of His incredible grace and mercy. Because of His death on the cross. Because of His resurrection, which I can historically point to. And because one day he's going to return and bring me home, I am the way I am. And people go, I want that. And then finally, and this is my shortest point, don't panic anyway. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. I think one of the places we see the most pain and suffering in this world and the reality that the world is not the way it should be is in sexuality. I know as a pastor so many stories of people who have suffered and experienced pain in their sexuality and failed and been hurt by others. And Jesus' promise is, I am, I will bring life even to that. You see, Pilate stands before Jesus and he says, Jesus, you are a lie. You are a lie. What broke the Garden of Eden? What broke the most beautiful place ever made? A lie. And that lie was simply this. Adam and Eve were told, you don't need God. You can be like God. You can make your own way. And they believed the lie. What is our culture saying? You don't need God. You can be like God. You can make your own way. And we're wondering why Eden feels so broken, why this world feels so broken. And so many people would say, hey, if you just fix the world, if you just fix the systems out there, humans are inherently good. Jesus says, no, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. There's a sinful, broken heart that has believed the lie that we can live apart from God. And the beauty of Jesus that he, despite the lie, steps into human history, as I've said many times, dies on a cross for the sexually broken, for those who believe the lie. Three days later, he's raised in victory and declares to all of creation, all his enemies, and all sin, I am not a lie. I am true. And I will redeem, and I will restore, and I will bring healing to anyone who believes in me, who rejects the lie, turns to truth, bows the knee, and surrenders himself fully and completely to Jesus. I guess the question is, and the answer to, to what is utopia in heaven, that he's preparing a house for us. He's preparing rooms for us. And for everyone who does that, one day we will spare Spend all eternity with Jesus. He will wipe away every tear and he will restore all brokenness. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray.
And as I pray, I want to ask every single person in this room a simple question. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? I want you to really answer that question in your heart. Do you trust Jesus? He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Do you trust him enough to bring him every single area of your life and know that he will lead you into life? Whether it's hurt or pain or brokenness, or whether you've been wrestling against his ways, knowing that he's asking you to turn from certain things, and you're saying, no, I think at the heart of that is a trust issue. He is good. He loves you. If you are his son, if you are his daughter, he delights over you. And he wants to bring life and nothing but life to you. So as I pray, if there's anything you need to surrender, surrender it to him. Father, your words are good. Your words are true. Your spirit is at work. You are alive. You've been powerfully at work in our lives and in this time over this weekend. And I pray, God, for your spirit to be at work in a powerful and profound way that, that people who don't trust you would trust you again. People who, who, who are fearful of what it is you're asking them to do would no longer be fearful because they know of your love for them and that your ways lead to life. And Father, I ask that for anyone who is struggling to turn from their ways to your ways, from their truth to your truth, that God, they wouldn't feel like you're coming at them with a stick, but that you are coming them at them with arms wide open. You are kneeling before them, and you're saying, I gave everything for you so that you could know that I am good, and I love you, and I want what is for you. And I pray that hearts would repent and turn from their ways, turn from their truth back to the one who loves them and who cares for them. And that you would bring your healing this evening, God. Amen. Thanks, Ian. Um, I'm really sad that that's the end of the weekend. I really wish it would uh, extend and go longer. It's been wonderful having the guys from Common Ground serving us. Um, that's the end of our service tonight, guys. There is hot chocolate. Uh, please go and enjoy that under the tent. And um, if you are new, there's uh, muffins over there to go and enjoy and have a chat with Matt. He's uh, looking forward to seeing you. And uh, we'll see you next week Sunday. Have a great one.